This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. And so with this as the focus, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 5. And as you make your way to the fifth chapter of Job, well, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember uh, that this book is centered around the trials and the tragedies and the troubles of a godly man named Job. And while the first two chapters of this book detail the way that Job was suffering from the spiritual attacks of Satan, well, chapters 3 through 37 actually recount the conversation that occurred as Job and his friends attempted to make sense of the tragedies that had come upon him. And so, uh, you know, for, uh, for the next several uh, weeks and uh, probably, uh, I guess, maybe a few months here, we're going to be uh, considering this conversation, going through it chapter by chapter, and, and just considering how these guys were trying to make sense of all of this. And I'll just remind you, it was in our study last week when we first considered the initial counsel that came from Job's friend, Eliphaz. And while it's true that the counsel of Eliphaz was, for the most part, correct, well, it's also true that his counsel was being misapplied. And the reason I say this, well, it's due to the fact that the counsel that Eliphaz was offering was based upon an incorrect assumption that Job was somehow receiving a spiritual spanking from the Lord. In other words, Eliphaz had already concluded that Job was receiving the chastening of the Lord. And, and he even uh, appealed to the appearance of an apparition who whispered in his ear about the secret sins of Job. And so he took that as proof and evidence that Job must be living in sin. And it's for this reason that Eliphaz was then convinced that Job actually deserved the discipline that he was receiving from the Lord. What he was failing to realize was that Job wasn't guilty of some unrepentant secret sin. Therefore, the tragedies and the trials that had befallen the house of Job, well, it wasn't because the Lord was punishing him, but rather it was because the Lord was allowing his faith to be put to the test uh, so that he could grow through it all. As a matter of fact, I'll remind you, it was back in the beginning of this book where we first learned about Job's relationship with the Lord. And according to the Lord, Job was an upright and blameless man who not only fearfully respected God, but who also shunned evil. And even after suffering that very first spiritual attack of Satan, Job still held fast to his spiritual integrity, thereby demonstrating his commitment to the king of kings. Therefore, Eliphaz had incorrectly concluded that Job was being punished for some secret sin. It's for this reason that Eliphaz continued to call Job on the carpet. He, he was operating under the assumption that Job was living in sin, so he calls Job on the carpet, he calls him to repent, and, and, and now we find him tonight encouraging him to come clean and confess his sins. And not only that, but Eliphaz was also convinced that Job was being foolish, and he believed he was being foolish for failing to realize that he was actually suffering for his sins because he wouldn't just come clean and confess and, and, and you know, make things right with God. And it's for this reason that he incorrectly encouraged Job to repent of his foolishness by seeking forgiveness for sins that he hadn't actually committed. Now with all this in focus, I want to turn our attention now back to the book of Job. If you would look with me here at Job chapter 5. I want to begin reading there at verse 1, because here Eliphaz continues by declaring, Call out now, is there anyone who will answer you, and to which of the holy ones will you turn? Now, here in the first verse of this chapter, we find Eliphaz, he's actually challenging Job to go and find another godly person who would contradict the counsel that he had been presenting him. 
He's basically saying, hey, everything that I said is right. Go and find a religious ruler, uh, some sort of religious leader to come and tell you otherwise. You're not going to find such a person. And while it's true that the counsel of Eliphaz would have been excellent exhortation for a person who actually was living in sin, well, it's also true that his counsel was incorrect in Job's case. The reason why? Because, again, Job wasn't guilty of living in some sort of unrepentant sin. He was a man who faithfully woke up every day and offered the right sacrifices for the sins that he had committed. And so, you know, he was walking by faith with the Lord and keeping short accounts with God. Sadly, Eliphaz continued to accuse Job of living like an evil man who foolishly provokes the Lord. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 5. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 2. Here Eliphaz declares, For wrath kills a foolish man, and envy slays a simple one. I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling place. His sons are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no deliverer, because the hungry eat up his harvest, taking it even from the thorns, and a snare snatches their substance. For affliction does not come from the dust. Nor does trouble spring from the ground, yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Now here in these verses we find Eliphaz, he's indirectly accusing Job of being a foolish man. And just to be clear, the word foolish, which is found there in verses 2 and 3, well it's translated from a Hebrew word which was used of those who despise wisdom. The same word was also used of the quarrelsome person who loves to mock their accusers, and especially when they're guilty of the accusation. Rather than receiving an accusation and confessing you know, the guilt, uh, rather than you know, agreeing with the accuser if, if they're actually living in sin, the foolish person, though they're guilty, will then turn around and say, nah, you don't know what you're talking about. Nah, I'm not doing those things that you're accusing me of. That's what a foolish person does. They fail to acknowledge their guilt. And with this definition in mind, a, a foolishness, Eliphaz here He seems to be suggesting that Job was acting like a foolish person who despises wisdom. He's saying, hey, Job, I've seen foolish people, and you appear to be acting like those foolish people. Rather than receiving wise counsel from Eliphaz, Job was apparently acting like a quarrelsome person who mocks those who accurately accuse them of sin. Eliphaz also points out here that the foolish person who will not repent will eventually be destroyed. Not only that, but it's there in verse 3 where Eliphaz warns Job by declaring, I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling place. In other words, he's saying the foolish person who begins to enjoy a season of success, though they might start, you know, uh, you know, having roots in the ground, so to speak, or, or building up their life, they're soon destroyed. They soon suffer a sudden disaster because of the punishment that comes upon them for their foolishness. And in this way, he was you know, suggesting here that the sudden disaster that had already come upon Job was just evidence to him that Job was actually a foolish person. To further make his case, Eliphaz describes the way that this sudden destruction would affect the family and finances of the foolish person. And notice again in verse 4, here again Eliphaz declares his sons, speaking of the foolish person, his sons are far from safety, they are crushed in the gate, and there is no deliverer. Because the hungry eat up his harvest, taking uh, it even from the thorns, and a snare snatches their substance. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. 
As we take another look at these verses here, there's no doubt in my mind that Eliphaz here, he's presenting a parallel between the proverbial foolish man whose sons are crushed and whose crops are consumed. He's comparing that proverbial foolish man to Job whose children were crushed in their own home and whose flocks you know, were stolen by raiders. And so while he wasn't explicitly accusing Job of being a foolish man, this was most certainly the impl- implication. He was presenting an implied accusation that Job was being punished because he had been foolish. Now, if Eliphaz was correct, if it's true that Job was foolishly living in unrepentant sin, well, then his counsel would have been most, uh, mostly correct here. And the reason why is because the Lord does indeed discipline his children who are living in sin. The Lord has promised to punish his, his children, those who trust in him. He's promised to punish them. He's promised to chasten them. And to prove my point, I want to consider the way that King Solomon describes this in Proverbs chapter 3. It's verses 11 and 12 where Solomon declares this. He says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Whom the Lord loves, he corrects. The Lord has no problem correcting his kids who are living in sin and knowing that this loving correction is crucial for the spiritual growth of every Christian, we would all do well to make sure that we aren't foolishly despising the chastening of the Lord. If you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you should expect that if you return to a life of sin, that the Lord is going to chasten you. And if and when that time uh, comes in your life, don't despise it but rather rejoice in it, because what does it prove? Well, it proves that you're an adopted child of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And so if nothing else, it's, a, it's at least an indicator that you are a child of God. And so receive it, because it's for your good. With this as the goal, I want to consider the encouragement that Eliphaz then presents to Job here in our text tonight. And so I want to pick up our study of Job chapter 5. If you would look with me there at verse 8, because here Eliphaz goes on to declare, but as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noontime as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword, from the mouth of the mighty and from their hand so the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. And here in these verses, uh, we find Eliphaz, he's indirectly encouraging Job to, to go and present his case before God. And while this advice was based upon his mistaken assumption that Job's affliction uh, was some sort of punishment from the Lord, I, I'm not going to uh, fault Eliphaz for presenting uh, what, what I believe to be the best advice that anyone could offer. He does. I believe he uh, presents some really good advice here. It's found there in verse 8. Here, Eliphaz declares, As for me, 
I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. I love that. If it were me, Job, I would go and pray to God. The scholars who created the Bible in basic English translation, uh, this, uh, this, these scholars rendered verse 8 in this way. As for me, I would make my prayer to God, and I would put my cause before him. This is excellent advice, and the reason I say this is because, listen, our God is the omniscient one who knows everything. And so, you know, if you think, you know, Googling, you know, for an answer, if you think talking to some AI chatbot is going to provide you with the right answer, this is silly. We need to go talk to God, the omniscient one. And again, Eliphaz was assuming the worst about Job. And yet it's also true that the best advice that we could offer to any person, regardless of where they at, they're at in their relationship with God, the best advice that we can give to anyone is to spend more time seeking the Lord in prayer. And so you might be in a counseling situation, and you don't really know what's going on. You don't know if they're being honest with you. You don't know if they're living in secret sin. You don't know if they're just under spiritual attack. You know, and if you don't know, who do you turn to? The one who knows everything. You turn to the Lord. You spend time in prayer. And that's the best counsel that we could offer to those who are trying to figure out why they're in the middle of affliction. You don't know? Seek the Lord. Pray to God. Eliphaz went on to present a a list of reasons for why Job should prayerfully seek the Lord. And and in every situation, as a matter of fact, uh, look with me again there, Job chapter 5, verse 9. Here Eliphaz reminds Job that God does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. What a great description of God. God does great things that are unsearchable and marvelous things without number. Christian, listen, the Lord is the one who is infinitely incredible. He's immeasurably marvelous. And and it's going to take all of eternity for us to just discover who God is. It's not like we get to heaven and now we have all information. No, you'd have to be infinite to have all information. In our resurrected state, we're going to be eternal, but we're still not infinite. And we're going to continue to explore the goodness of God for the rest of eternity. It's incredible to imagine. But today, you know, I mean, we, we, need, we need divine wisdom. We need help from God. Therefore, regardless of whether we're struggling with sin or we're wondering why God is allowing some affliction, we would simply do well to, to spend more time prayerfully seeking the one who alone is able to accomplish great and marvelous things that are beyond our comprehension. Eliphaz also reminded Job that God is the one who controls the weather. That's right. It's not Al Gore. I know that's an inconvenient truth for some, but, but listen. God is the one who controls the weather. And sometimes he gives us global warming. Sometimes he gives us global cooling. And it's all climate change, praise the Lord. So, but notice how, how Eliphaz puts it here. You know, he didn't have all, all the science that he needed, but he knew this. 
Verse 10, he gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. Yeah. God, who, who does great and marvelous things that are beyond our understanding, this is the same God who controls the hydrological cycle, which in turn produces the crops that provides us with food that we can eat. That's right. The food just does not show up at HEB. It has to be grown first, and for that you need water. And God is the one who controls the hydrological cycle, and God is the one who uh, is able to control the weather, and he's the one who can calm the storm. And he's able to answer our prayers according to his perfect will if we'll simply spend time praying to him. Eliphaz also reminded Job about the way in which the Lord cares for those who are dealing with depression. If you would look with me again at verse 11, here he declares, he sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. In other words, those who are depressed, those who are struggling with sadness, those who are mourning the loss of a loved one, they, these are the people who will be lifted up, they will be encouraged, that they would simply prayerfully present their problems to the Lord, and so we should. Are you depressed tonight? Are you struggling with sorrow? Are you sad? Are you mourning you know, the loss of a loved one? you find yourself dealing with these depressing dilemmas, the best thing to do, prayerfully seek the Lord and pour out your heart before him and allow him to minister to you. Eliphaz also reminded Job about the way that God is able to correct those who are, well, according to him, crafty. Uh, I want to consider how he puts it here, beginning in verse 12. Here we learn that the Lord frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. Uh, now here in these verses we find Eliphaz. He's describing the way that the Lord deals with those who are determined to deceive us. That's what he's talking about with these crafty people. They're, they're determined to deceive us. And not only that, but he also frustrates the schemers who are just trying to take advantage of us. And seeing how you know, the world is filled with these sneaky schemers who want to take advantage of us, well, we'd all do well to remember that those who spend time prayerfully seeking guidance from God, they're going to they're receive the divine discernment that we need. We're going to receive the divine direction that we need to avoid the crafty schemes of every scammer. Finally, Eliphaz warns Job about the way that God judges those who dwell in darkness while abusing their positions of power. And I want to consider how he puts it here. Uh, look with me again at Job chapter 5, beginning at verse 14. Here we learn that they meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noontime as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword, from the mouth of the mighty, and from their hand, so the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. Now, as we consider what Eliphaz was saying here, I have no doubt that he was intending to imply that Job is the one who was guilty of dwelling in darkness even at noon. He's saying you might be living in the sunlight, but you're hiding things as if it were in darkness. Not only that, but he also seemed to be suggesting here that Job was some sort of mighty man, and he, and he was. He was the wealthiest man in this region. And so he was this sort of mighty man, probably had political power, and, and, and Eliphaz here seems to be suggesting that maybe he was abusing that power uh, and, and, and that Job may have become some sort of mighty man abusing his position of power by treating his servants with selfish injustice. Maybe he was thinking that he was withholding wages or, or treating his servants poorly, and, 
And if that's the case, you know, uh, then what Eliphaz was saying here would make sense, though he wasn't saying it directly, it was more implicit. Now, if it's true that Eliphaz was indirectly accusing Job of these things, then, well, it's also true that he was the one who was actually darkening counsel uh, with uh, words without knowledge. He was saying things, but he didn't really have the knowledge to know that what he was saying was wrong. And, and the reason I say this is because, remember, Job was an upright man who feared the Lord and shunned evil. And so Job, Job wasn't mistreating his servants. He wasn't withholding wages. He, he wasn't you know, doing the things that Eliphaz was suggesting here. That being the case, I should remind you that his counsel to Job though much of it was true counsel and much of it is good counsel for someone living in sin, it was being misapplied because Job wasn't guilty of these things. And listen, it's important to understand that truthful counsel that's being misapplied oftentimes harms those who are on the receiving end of the counsel. If you present counsel to somebody which is based on an implied accusation of sin that they're not actually guilty of, well, that's a, that's a hurtful thing for them. And so we would do well to follow the instructions that Paul presented to the Christians who were living in, in Galatia. It's actually Galatians chapter 6, it's verses 1 and 2, where Paul declares this, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now from this we can see here that that there is a a protocol that is necessary and and something that we should consider before we reckon ourselves to be the rebuker of of another person. Listen, before we accuse another believer of living in unrepentant sin, we must first make sure that we're actually being led by the Spirit of God. That's why Paul says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, in other words, if there's really evidence that they're overtaken in in some sort of sin, you who are spiritual restore such a one. You who are spiritual. In other words, you who are being led by the Spirit. We have to make sure that we're being led by the Holy Spirit before we go on our, you know, correct another Christian campaign. We don't want to make the same mistake as Eliphaz, who accused Job falsely before he knew the truth of the matter. He didn't spend any time investigating Job's life. He didn't spend any time looking into what was happening there. He simply, you know, heard some spirit whisper in his ear and came uh, ready to rebuke. He was being led by a spirit, it just wasn't the Holy Spirit. So we have to be careful. If it's in fact true that the Holy Spirit is leading you to present corrective counsel to a Christian who is somehow overtaken in some sort of sin, then, then according to Paul, we should then first consider our own struggle with sin. That's what he says. Notice again. If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Consider yourself in the whole process. Before we go and offer corrective counsel, we should consider our own struggles with sin. And the reason why is because, listen, 
correction should be offered by those who humbly recognize that we're all sinners. The, the, the Christian who has this, I don't sin, I'm, I'm you know, just like Jesus, I'm just as holy as, as God the Father, and, and I'm going to go around and now correct everyone that is doing it wrong. There's no humility in this. This doesn't bring restoration. This is not the way we should you know, correct people. We have to consider ourselves. We have to look at ourselves first. We have to take the plank out of our own eye first so that then we can see clearly to help our brother or sister in Christ receive the speck that's in their eye. Then as we approach the individual spiritually, being led by the Spirit, and humbly, having considered our own struggles, then the Lord will help us to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. That's what Paul says, that we should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. And with all this in mind, listen, those who want to correct another Christian who is overtaken in some sort of sin, we should do this spiritually, humbly, and gently, all with the goal of helping them to repent and return to the Lord. Not with the, I told you so, I told you if you went and made these decisions that this is going to happen, and you know nobody needs that. They, they need a gentle Christian to go and present them with truth so that this person might be restored, because that really needs to be the goal, right? To restore them. And so, take a lesson from Eliphaz in the sense that here's a guy who had some pretty good counsel, had some decent instruction here, it was just misapplied because he's rebuking someone that really doesn't need to be rebuked at this point in his life. And so we have to be careful too. Before we go a correcting, you know, let's consider ourselves to make sure that we're being led by the Spirit, that we're walking in humility, and that we're ready to restore gently. With this as the goal, we should take some time to consider the encouragement that Eliphaz goes on to present to Job here. And so uh, it, it's almost as if like he's, he's kind of saying, hey, look, there's a benefit for you repenting, though Job didn't need to repent here. But I, I want to consider the encouragement that, that Eliphaz was presenting because there's some good stuff here in Job chapter 5. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 17, because here he goes on to declare, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. For he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. He shall deliver you in six troubles. Yes, in seven no evil shall touch you. In famine he shall redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue, and you shall not be afraid of destruction when it comes. You shall laugh at destruction and famine, and you shall not be afraid of the beasts of the earth. For you shall have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is in peace. You shall visit your dwelling and find nothing amiss. You shall also know that your descendants shall be many, and your offspring like the grass of the earth. You shall come to the grave at a full age, as a sheaf of grain ripens in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear it and know for yourself. Here in these verses we find Eliphaz. He's presenting Job with a list of benefits and blessings that are enjoyed by those who will receive the Lord's loving correction. And a lot of this is, is you know, greatly and overly generalized, uh, and I certainly wouldn't build much theology out of these verses. But there's some good stuff here. Uh, and, 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 and this advice, while it was pretty good advice, 
it didn't really apply to Job's specific situation, and, and, uh, and, and yet there are some truths here that we might consider for our own sake. You know? and, and so you know, uh, the first overarching principle that I want to point out here, uh, well, it's that those who will humbly receive the loving correction of the Lord will end up being blessed as we repent and return to the Lord. Now, does that mean that you're going to live to be 105 years old you know, when, until you die? No, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Eliphaz can't say that. I can't say that. Nobody can actually say that. You know, does that mean that you're, you're never going to experience the spiritual attack of Satan? Not at all. I mean, Job himself was a, a godly man. He was living in the way that he should have lived, right? Uh, and yet he ended up suffering two spiritual attacks of Satan. And so, you know, you can't say that, you know, the, the humble Christian who receives the rebuke of the Lord is going to then, you know, escape all spiritual attacks for the rest of their lives. That's, that's not the case either. But there is an overarching principle in the fact that Regardless of whether we're receiving correction, chastening, or spiritual attack of Satan, uh, either way, uh, those who will follow the leading of the Lord will be blessed. We're going to be blessed regardless of the circumstances and situations. And it's here in these verses where Eliphaz illustrates this truth in several different ways. For example, it's in verse 18 where we see that the Lord restores those who receive his loving correction. In verse 19, we see that the Lord delivers those who receive his loving correction. In verse 20, we see that the Lord redeems those who receive his loving correction. And in verse 21, we see that the Lord protects those who receive his loving correction. In verse 22, we see that the Lord strengthens, strengthens those who receive his loving correction. In verse 23, we see that the Lord prospers those who receive his loving correction. In verse 24, we see that the Lord brings peace to those who receive his loving correction. In verse 25, we see that the Lord blesses the family of those who receive his loving correction. And in verse 26, we see that the Lord blesses the life of those who receive his loving correction. And finally, in verse 27, we see that the Lord reveals truth to those who will receive his loving correction. And as we consider all of these blessings and benefits that, that are uh, enjoyed by those who will receive the loving correction of the Lord, I think that Eliphaz sums it up best there in verse 17 where he declares, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. Happy is the man whom God corrects. And so it would be, it would be uh, you know, senseless. It would be foolish to despise the chastening of the Almighty. Christian, listen, if you want to enjoy the blessings and the benefits that the Lord has for you, then we must be ready to receive the chastening of the Lord. And we must be ready to receive that whenever he decides that we need to be corrected. I like the way that Paul put it in Hebrews chapter 12. It's there where he declares, You have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Were they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, 
but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, now the, the final statement there is, is really the qualifier here. Because if you go through chastening, but you're not trained by it, then guess what's going to happen again? You're going to be chastened again. And if you're not trained by that chastening, well, here comes the next one. Like God's going to continue to bring you to a point of chastening until you are trained by it. Because the end result is your perfection. It's so that you can be a partaker of his holiness. So the best thing that we can do when we are being chastened by the Lord is to receive it, rejoice in it, and then be trained by it. Actually grow from it. The Father is going to chasten the adopted children that he loves so much so, so that we might become uh, you know, believers who are upright and blameless. And so if you've been foolishly rejecting the loving correction of the Lord, then please trust me when I tell you that uh, you know, not only are you going to be brought back in, 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 you know, to the tool shed, so to speak, you know, but, but you're missing out on many blessings today. There are blessings that the Lord has for the believers who will simply receive the chastening that he has for us. And when we simply respond to the loving correction of the Lord with relational repentance, the Lord blesses us as a result. Trust me when I tell you that our Heavenly Father loves us too much to let us continue living in sin. Our Heavenly Father loves us too much to allow us to continue living in sin. And it's his love that leads him to chasten us. And he will continue to scourge the sons and the daughters that he loves if he sees us wandering away from the narrow path of righteousness. And in this we can rejoice. We can rejoice in knowing that the good work that Jesus started in us, he's faithful to complete it. He's faithful to complete it. I know there's some people that think that they can lose their salvation. I'm not one. I don't believe that. Why? Because I'm told that the Savior who started a good work in me is faithful to complete it. Is he not going to make good on that promise? While I rejoice in my eternal security, I also realize that there's scourging along the way for those who need it. Now, he's going to complete the work, and it might take a lot of scourging for some of us. That being the case, I encourage every Christian, you know, if you're choosing to live in unrepentant sin, quickly repent. I'm not talking about struggling with sin. I'm not talking about, you know, I'm, I'm wrestling with this, I'm fighting against it, I'm seeking the Lord about it, you know, I'm doing my best to overcome it, and bam, I, I stumbled. I'm not talking about that. We all struggle with that. I'm talking about those who are choosing to live in unrepentant sin. God's going to get you. I can't tell you when. But he, he's going to scourge you. He, he's going to chasten you. He's going to correct you. And so you might as well repent before it gets to that point. If you find yourself on the receiving end of the Lord's loving correction, repent. Return to him and be restored. 
At the same time, I just want to remind you in closing that there are times when a Christian you know, who appears to be on the receiving end of the Lord's loving correction uh, might really just be a believer who is suffering the spiritual attacks of Satan. So if you see a Christian who's just being you know, taken through the ringer, you, know, you see a, another believer who is you know, just clearly just, you know, everything seems to be just going wrong for them, don't jump to the conclusion that they must be living in sin. Don't be an Eliphaz rushing to give that counsel that doesn't really apply. But maybe just pray for him. And seek the Lord about whether or not you are supposed to go rebuke, whether or not you are supposed to counsel and, and advise. Let's learn a lesson from the life of Eliphaz by realizing that those who are quick to accuse others of living in sin might be judging with unrighteous judgment. It's for this reason that we ought to just take the advice from Eliphaz that was excellent, which is what? Seek, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in prayer. Let's spend more time praying for the divine guidance of God so that we can become those believers who are walking in the wisdom of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word and for how